Before we get started with today's episode of Amped Up with Ryan Knight, we want to let you know that we have exclusive bonus content on Patreon at patreon.com slash amped up. You can find the video versions of all our interviews, so make sure you check out our bonus content today at patreon.com slash amped up. Thanks for your support and enjoy the show. Welcome to Amped Up. This is your host, Ryan Knight. And before I introduce our guest today, I just want to take a quick moment uh, and thank all of you for your support, uh, well wishes, and kind words for my family and my sister, who was recently diagnosed with stage four uh, breast cancer. It has been an incredibly challenging time for my family, and we couldn't get through it without your prayers uh, and support and love. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. You have shown me that no one fights alone, and the power that community has when it comes together, takes care of each other, and and, and fights for one another. Uh, So it's good to be back doing the show. Uh, So without further ado, let's bring on our guest today, uh, Jose Cortez. Jose is a socialist candidate for the U.S. House, uh, running in San Diego's 51st Congressional District. He is a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation and the Peace and Freedom Party. Jose, welcome to Amped Up. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm very excited to discuss socialism and just get into the issues. Fantastic. Well, let's let's dive right into it. Um, look, there was a, there's a new uh, Quimpiac poll out today. Uh, that has Joe Biden's approval rating at just 33%, which, to be frank, is still too high for a president and a party that has done nothing with its majority to improve the lives uh, of the working class. And and just for a quick recap for our listeners, under Biden uh, and the Democrats' majority, remember, they control the House, the Senate, and the White House. Uh, There's been no vote on Medicare for all, no living wage, no basic income, no universal housing, no canceling student debt, uh, but there has been more money for the military, more money for police, and more money for big oil uh, via uh, uh, an expansion of the fossil fuel subsidies that were happening under the Trump regime as well. And and all of this kind of flies in the face of Bernie uh, Sanders, AOC, and the squad's whole theory of change, right? Which is that if we just elect more progressive Democrats, the Democratic Party can somehow be moved to the left. But what we've seen in the past year is the party has done the exact opposite. It's moved further right and closer to its corporate donors. So my question for you, Jose, is, is it time for the working class to to finally accept that the Democratic Party cannot be moved to the left? And the only way to get uh, fundamental change for the people and planet is to leave the party for good and get behind revolutionary socialist movements parties and candidates uh, like yourself? Oh, definitely. I mean, if anything, what we've seen over the last, just my lifetime of all the talk about voting for the lesser of two evils and just basically wait and see politics that the Democratic Party has just espoused to working class communities, we've just seen how morally and just absolutely bankrupt that is uh, in the face of the just ever present, just rightward motion of even the Democratic Party, uh, the, the the lesser of two evil argument really, really just lends itself to this dynamic where if you're willing to accept less and less from the Democratic Party, the Democrats know that that they don't have to actually give up any concessions to get your vote and they can just continuously move the just center of uh, the political discussion further and further to the right, which is where we find ourselves today, where the Democrats are seen as like a left option when in reality, they're like really a center right option to the like far right uh, kind of you know fascist resurgence that we're kind of seeing all over the country. 
So yeah, I mean, definitely everything that we've been seeing is just really, really just bringing home the fact that we cannot trust a capitalist warmongering party to have the interest of working class people at heart. You know, for all the talk that we've heard about, you know, you know, universal healthcare, Medicare for all, you know, ending the 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 just just ridiculously just over the top and just expensive wars and just brutal wars all around the world. Uh, you know, all of this definitely just like rings hollow to what the Democrats have actually done with their time in office, which is to enrich themselves, enrich their friends, and to basically carry out uh, the status quo. Uh, basically, you know, appeasing Wall Street and big old corporate interests way more than just even the people that put them in office, like banking on the fact that essentially feeling like their life depended on voting for Joe Biden. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people are left having to see that uh, the Democrats, for all that lofty rhetoric, really don't have any sort of plan to mobilize people to 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 get the the things that we all are you know desperately clamoring for. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming more and more glaringly obvious to, to workers, to people that are just able to take a look around and see that, you know, oh, oh, things are still, you know, as bad, if not worse than they were, you know, four, eight, you know, years ago, even just like it just continuously getting worse. Uh, I think it becomes just more obvious that we need a revolutionary alternative. We need not like a, a wait and see kind of political party uh, or one that espouses to be on the worker side like the Democratic Party. We need a, a party of working class people that's accountable to working class people, that's made up of working class people, uh, that actually runs uh, on a platform that working class people support. And that platform is one that, you know, everyone's talking about, which is healthcare, housing and education should be constitutional guarantees. Hmm. Uh I think everyone's tired of hearing about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't know what any of that means if I don't have a house or if I'm not, if I'm like dying of preventable illnesses or I don't have access to education. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's becoming more and more obvious. And that's just evident in the conversations that I'm having on a daily basis, walking on the streets, talking to people, knocking on doors outside of grocery stores. I mean, people are clamoring for it, but they just don't see the alternative yet. And that's mm. why we need to step up and be an alternative ourselves, those of us who are organizing and trying to be political. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, you bring up a good point that, you know, the, the, the big con of the Democratic Party is they've kind of mastered the art of of using platitudes and fancy speeches and appealing to people's kind of identities. But then, you know, and, and using rhetoric, you know, very lofty campaign rhetoric, making all these promises during the campaign season. But then as soon as they have power, like we've just seen in the first year of Biden's presidency and like we saw under Obama's presidency, too, if we're being really honest, is that is 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 the way they govern and the actual policies they're passing doesn't match the, the, the rhetoric they use on the campaign. Right. You know, in the campaign, they say they're for the people. They say that, you know, they're for the planet. Well, when they're governing, actually, no, they're for their corporate donors. They're for Wall Street. They're for the billionaire class. And it's always, you know, every single time when there's a crisis in this country, just look at what happened in 2008 during the financial crisis, right? When the, the both parties, including the Democrats, they bailed out the big banks who crashed the economy and left workers to drown. Look at this pandemic. They did the same thing. They used another crisis. They always use crises to, to instead of actually helping the people who are affected by the crisis, they use these crises to funnel more money to themselves and to their corporate donors and to the billionaire class. And we saw them do that in the pandemic where, where they, they had that big thing they called the CARES Act, right? Well, right. there was a lot of care for the billionaire class and, and there wasn't much care. There wasn't any care for the working class. And it turned out to be the large, one of the largest wealth transfers in U.S. history. 
And so oh, yeah. I, I just think we're way past the point of giving the Democrats a pass anymore. It's time to leave the party and start to build alternatives and start to really fight back against a system, against this capitalist system that is completely rigged against the everyday person and against the working class. Someone's labor oh, should not be exploited to enrich an oligarch. You know, we shouldn't be fighting these endless wars abroad and, 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 and really uh, that impact poor and working class people abroad to enrich the oligarchs here at home. The entire system oh, yeah is corrupt and we're seeing the rot. And I think for a long time we could, people were, you know, especially kind of on the liberals and I used to be a liberal. It's like, we weren't, we didn't want to see the consequences of our decrepit capitalist system, right? The wars were happening over there. The landfills are over there. You know, we, we, people were kind of removed from the actual consequences, but now you see it every day and you can't look away, you know, and then you have the climate crisis and it's all, you know, it's like the chickens have come home to roost. And this system oh, yeah. is not sustainable uh, for our planet and for our people. You know, our people are really hurting. And all Democrats want to offer is platitudes. Well, platitudes don't pay people's bills. You know, platitudes don't, you, you know, don't give people health care. You know, and so we're way past that moment. Um, you know, do you want to kind of, let, maybe let's back up for a second. Do you want to share a little mm -hmm. bit about your own political journey and what events in your life kind of opened your eyes to the corruption of our capitalist system and inspired you to run for office as a socialist and, and fight for socialism? Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, if anything, I have a very similar story probably to yours in a lot of ways where I was not very political for most of my life. I mean, if I was political, I was more like apathetic or I just accepted, you know, that, oh, that the political system, the way that it is, is, is just the inherent result of, uh, of politics and power. A lot of what we're kind of told in postmodern kind of literature and, and, the, and uh, just kind of media about how all, all power, all authority is corrupt. So I was kind of very just nihilistic and apathetic uh, towards the political system. It wasn't until like I started reconnecting and deconstructing a lot of really toxic masculinity and just like trauma, I would say within myself, that I started to like get more interested in politics again. Um, and it really wasn't until, uh, you know, police brutality uprising in my hometown in 2016 that I actually started, you know, taking that next step to get involved. I had mostly went out in 2016, the El Cajon Police Department shot and killed Alfred Alongo, who was a Ugandan refugee uh, living in El Cajon. They were in, in a mental health crisis, uh, a story that all of us are unfortunately very familiar with, uh, which is, they, you know, their sister called the police trying to get them some assistance. Took them an hour for the police to show up. And then when the police did show up, rather than bringing like any sort of actual person that like a medical professional that could help them, uh, within 50 seconds, they shot and killed Alfred Alongo 50, uh, five times in the parking lot of my dentist's office mm. and a taco shop. So I went out, I uh, was working with children at the time and we were studying uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And we were studying uh, basically the civil rights movement and the kids, they were middle schoolers rightfully asked me, we're like, why is this any of this important? Like, we don't really care about history because it's not important. And it really made me recognize of like, well, you know, if no one in their lives, if no one in anyone's life is like really political, then like, why would people really recognize the need for, for the political engagement to actually care about these things? So I went out, you know, when I got the alert, I saw what was happening and specifically how local it was to my own life. Like the parking lot of my dentist's office doesn't get very much more personal. I was there a lot of times as a kid growing up. Uh, you know, I have a very real memory of this place and to just hear that somebody was brutally gunned down, someone that really realistically just could have been me, to be honest, going through a very difficult time as well. Um, 
definitely drew me there. And what I saw there definitely radicalized and inspired me because I was not a revolutionary. If anything, I was uh, at that time more of like a pacifist, uh, you know, somebody that was just like trying to live a good life, you know, hashtag good vibes or whatever. Right, um, right, right. <laughs> but, you know, I got out there and I saw like that, you know, what we were up against wasn't just individual acts of hate or ignorance, that it was a systemic like war, basically. What we I now know is class war, but... When I saw the, uh, you know, basically battalions of armed riot cops f f with materials straight from the fields of Af Afghanistan and Iraq, the helicopters, the mine resistant armored uh, vehicles. And this was for a protest that was, you know, remarkably peaceful. Like this was an occupation series protest that took on like three weeks, I believe it lasted. And, you know, over the course of that, the militarized response, the level of just, um, Basically, coordination from both the media, from like local politicians, from the police definitely awakened me personally to the fact that because this system was systemic, this issue was systemic, I should say, uh, that our response would have to be a systemic response in order for us to actually have any sort of change. Now, even back then, I wasn't necessarily a socialist. It was, but it was where I met socialists for the first time. Hmm. And that's where I kind of discovered because people go through this uh, kind of, I think, typical pipeline in American politics when they're kind of challenging the status quo. Uh, you're kind of funneled into one of two camps, like the liberal kind of identity politics -y camp where it's like, you know, we can basically just buy our way out of this or we could try and just like, you know, talk our way out of this in a certain way. And then there's the kind of more, you know, for lack of a better word, like, screw you, dad, you know, I'm going to like, you know, throw a rock through a Starbucks window, hashtag revolution or whatever. Um, that's, you know, like, the two options that really kind of present themselves. There's really not a history of like socialist organizing that we're taught in school for obvious reasons. Uh, so I, of course, kind of like kind of vacillated between those two available options. Yeah. But when I met and, socialists, and not to, just to kind of just sure. to piggyback on what you're saying, kind of if you if you kind of study the the, the history, and I'm sure you have, you know, in the last hundred oh, yeah. years, you really the 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 two paths. It's it's like. The, the side who wants to, who thinks you can reform capitalism, right? Put a Band-Aid on capitalism, somehow change a system that is rooted right. in exploitation and rooted in exploiting the labor of the poor and the working class to enrich the ruling class. And then there's, you know, the revolution side, right? It's, it's reform or revolution. And for a while, right. I was in the reform camp as well, thinking that foolishly, naively thinking, well, you know, you can reform capitalism, you can make it more humane or, you know, all the words certain people use, human-centered capitalism. Like, there's no such thing, you know, when I finally saw just how corrupt it was that at its core, capitalism is about uh, exploiting others so that a few can have uh, just unlimited amounts of wealth. Uh, and when you right. finally, when I finally saw that, that it's like, I don't want to live in a world without exploitation. I don't want to live in a world where you know, this person, you know, three people have hold more wealth than half of our country. You know, I want to live in an sure. equal world and a balanced world. Um, but it's just interesting how you personally came to its reform or revolution, because that's really been the fight over the last hundred years. And the Democrats are still kind of stuck in this. Oh, we can reform the system. No, you can't reform a system that is completely rigged against the people. And I also think that the two parties who benefit off this corrupt system, how are, why are they ever going to reform a system that they're profiting off of? Like, oh, no, the ruling class is yeah. never going to reform the system because they benefit off of it. It's up to yeah. the workers. It's up to all of us who want to live in a better world to lay the blueprint out and then go fight for that world and make that world happen. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, no. And there's never been an example of people who are making a profit off of exploitation and oppression just of their own volition being right. like, oh, yeah, you know what? Actually, this thing that made us exorbitantly rich, we're just going to stop doing it because we feel bad all of a sudden. If they, if it was about just them and the morality, like I remember at a rally, I was hearing um, someone speak about how if we could vote away capitalism, if we can vote away or sing or, sing or just like express ourselves enough to, ex uh, to explain away this system that was implemented by force. Let's not forget how capitalism was actualized in this country. It wasn't voted into place. It wasn't basically like wished or desired into place. It was put in there by force, uh, you know, at the, at the barrel of a gun, essentially. You know, ultimately that's the, the fundamental reality of this, uh, of this country and the history of this country. And, you know, ultimately, like we talked about, you know, reform versus revolution. And yeah, how essentially those are the two avenues that people are presented with. But unfortunately, like for a large sector of, of, of the working class, uh, the revolutionary option is presented, you know, obviously framed by our own bourgeoisie, the ruling class here, to be a very deliberate, I think, hyper individualistic kind of parody of what like a revolutionary uh, movement looks like. It's hyper individualistic. It's Basically what we, you know, a lot of us see and what I saw myself and what I kind of engaged with when I first became political, when I saw the two options, I was like, well, I can either be a like a liberal that like, uh, you know, goes and petitions the Democratic Party to to try and pass legislation that might at some point, uh, you know, do something. I'll tell you right now, I've never had a piece of paper protect me better than my own friends and my community uh, has ever done. But I will say like or the other option was to kind of take that hyper individualistic, like anti all, all authority is evil, anti like, you know, anti kind of collective mentality uh, that you kind of see, uh, you know, still like really, really hyped up as like revolution is throwing a brick through a Starbucks window and screaming like, screw you, dad, or whatever. Or it's like, you know, very limited individual actions detached from like a collective response. And I think, you know, we get that reinforced to us a lot in our media. Like when you see like the people that are fighting the system, it's very rarely as part of like a collective. It's like this hyper individualistic, you know, great man narrative or whatever you want to call it. Mm. So I think like, you know, for my own personal development, I'm grateful that I met socialists because, you know, I saw the very real limitations. I was organizing with a small crew of people. We were like the true, like almost true believers, right? We were like, we're like the real revolutionaries. We're ready for the get down right now. And I'll tell you where that led me was like to the streets of downtown San Diego. We led a really militant march, but we weren't prepared for the police repression that would ensue. And like, I'll tell you right now, like you have a lot of, you could talk a lot about revolution, but when you're face down with like guns pointed at you, when you think you're literally gonna die, which, you know, unfortunately for a lot of working class people is just a daily reality. Um, you know, that's that definitely makes you question of like, well, where is my effort best expended? I don't want my, my mom to bury a pine box. I don't want, I have things that I'm fighting for that I care about. Like the reason we're fighting is because we care and we love the world, right? So, yeah, reform versus revolution. But that's what made me really start questioning, too, was like, what kind of revolution? What kind of revolutionary movement? And it's one that, like, honestly, we have to look further back into our you know, history, you know, both here in this country, but just around the world for like, well, what has actually liberated people? What's actually liberated, you know, you know, billions of people, honestly, is socialism. And that's what made me a socialist. When I met socialists, I knew nothing about socialism. I was just some dude in a parking lot hanging out with a bunch of people during a police brutality uprising. <laughs> Uh, and it was socialists who came and explained to me that like basically everything that I inherently felt that it was wrong that I was walking over people dying of preventable illnesses on the streets, that it was wrong that like, you know, that there was more empty houses than there were homeless people in this country, that, you know, people should have access to health care and housing as guaranteed rights. 
the, you know, that all of that was like a fundamental part of like what a socialist society was that and that a socialist economy, a planned economy led to like basically just like massive improvements in quality of life all around for just like everybody. Of course, it just like immediately once I realized I'm like, oh, wait, there's a movement. There's an actual ism that exists that's actually done this thing that's done it well. That's like actually been able to like win liberation for people that look like me, which, you know, growing up here in the United States, I'll be honest, like. You know, like there's not very living, many living examples uh, for me to look up to, you know, not in this country, at least about like my own experience. If anything, what we're told here is just be grateful for whatever crumbs the Democratic Party or whoever (laughs) wants to slide our way. But like when I learned about socialism, I could learn about the, the Cuban Revolution, where a bunch of people, most of whom didn't have electricity or like literacy or anything like that, like basically overthrew the most powerful U.S. government that existed at the time, uh, the U.S. backed government of Batista. And like. That's insp- that's real inspiration. So for me, yeah, like the 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 choice of rev- former revolution really only became clear when I met revolutionaries, and not like just people that were just trying to do something because they were mad or because they, you know, rightfully had rightful feelings, but like, you know, like something that had a more deeper game plan was what like drew me into becoming a revolutionary. Hmm. What would it mean uh, to the working class and the overall socialist movement to have uh, a, a socialist like you in office? And would you use your office and, and position to help organize the socialist movement against the capitalist duopoly? Because uh, we saw a lot of, you know, people who called themselves socialists run in the Democratic Party. But then as soon as, as they got in and they got power... We saw that they actually, you know, weren't using their offices and seats to actually fight back uh, against the system. They they slowly started to get co-opted by the system, and you oh, know yeah. they went from you know fighting for Medicare for all to you know uh, apologizing for Biden and, and and making excuses for Pelosi. So you know, would you you know use your seat to fight back against the duopoly and to help organize the broader socialist movement if you were elected? Oh, definitely. At that point, you know, if if we uh, when you know if we win the election, we're going full steam ahead as just basically implementing or just trying to like submit legislation on an almost daily basis to just call out the contradictions and the inherent hypocrisy within this duopoly. Uh, how just basically how united you you know when we get into office, the the one thing that everyone's going to see is just how quickly uh, uh, a united front emerges between Democrats and Republicans against the interests of working class people. How quickly the conversation will become one of civility and one of like, you know, of honorifics and respecting a system that like, let's not forget, was crafted by slave owners, was crafted by like horrible misogynists and racists. So like, if anything, like our entry into Congress will be marked literally by you know, the same kind of interest that we made in all other political spheres here locally. Uh, when I was asked in our last debate, um, you know, will I, you know, find common ground with uh, the opposition on, you know, certain issues? It's like, no, I will I will not compromise on issues like healthcare, on issues like war, on issues like housing. Compromising with the bourgeoisie is what has led us to this lesser of two evil dynamic uh, that we're currently finding ourselves in. Like what we need is, you know, to draw a very stark like lines in the sand of our people deserve human dignity. They deserve it yesterday, not like some distant time in the future when, when you know, the Democrats can kind of just like figure out a better game plan to divert our energies. Uh, our kind of entry into Congress would be marked by like a very drastic change mm. because I'll just be 100% honest and real. I don't care about the, the sanctity of Congress or I don't care about the sanctity of like these 
these titles. It's all about like using the platform that presents itself and in, in the, in the platform of what a political office is supposed to be to fight for the constituents, to fight for the people. And not just like a, the 1% fraction of the constituency that has like a vested business interest in, in, in a political office, but in the people that like I talk to on a daily basis. We haven't talked about what I do yet. But every single day I'm talking on the phones to working class people, literally workers who work for companies like, you know, big car rentals, Amazon, all these, you know, huge corporations who outsource their HR departments to a company like mine. And I'm talking to them, hearing all of their horror stories about navigating for-profit private health insurance, about how they're losing benefits. They don't have their dependents on file because basically just bureaucratic nonsense that like shouldn't even be an issue because children, I'm just going to say a hot take, children deserve to be covered on medical insurance regardless. They're children. Um, so, I mean, like, you know, honestly, all of that, all of those conversations, all the contacts I make with people knocking, knocking on doors, talking to them, hearing their stories, seeing like 10 people living in a two bedroom apartment, you know, living, living tough because they got to, you know, all of that definitely is the stronger motivator for me to go in there and just basically, you know, spit truth that, you know, in you know, at these millionaires, call them all out for the hypocrisy they are and try to build a mass movement to depose all of them mm. rather than like, um, you know, rather than try to sit there and be like, well, maybe I can work with it. Maybe if I just like have enough, you know, catered brunches with them, uh, maybe maybe then they'll throw me a bone for human dignity or whatever. Uh, it would be a very completely different uh, 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 campaign and also just, uh, you know, tenure in Congress uh, if, if we were elected. Mm, I, I'd love to hear that. You know, look, one of the hurdles that, that, that I see and uh, kind of uh, fighting back against capitalism and really building a, a socialist economy and a socialist world is, is that most working class people are so exhausted from just trying to survive in, in this capitalist hellhole that rightfully when they get off work, they just want to escape, you know, behind a good video game or, you know, their favorite binge watch, their favorite Netflix show. How do we, you know, stay optimistic about the fight for a better world when this one is such a drag and just surviving takes up so much of our energy, you know, and kind of the second part of that, what are some of the most effective ways for the people to organize against capitalism and build the solidarity we need uh, to create uh, an equal, sustainable and balanced world? Oh, yeah. These are great questions because, yeah, people are going through it like it's. Yeah. Not only are we in a multi-year pandemic, which our government has just completely abandoned working class people to just endure, apparently just let them get sick, right, is the motto of the bourgeoisie right now. So, you know, understandably, our people are exhausted, both mentally, physically, just emotionally, everything, right? So it's not surprising that people are trying to find escape. And the bourgeoisie know this. This is why they, like, you know, develop you know, programming that's meant to like stress this hyper individualism, this kind of like nihilistic postmodern, like it's all futile, fatal, like the planet is just doomed. We just got to like deal with it. Yeah. Find happiness where you can. Well, you know, like what I've seen, obviously they try to sell this mythology to us that this is the inherent human condition that we find ourselves in. Mm. But the reality is when you go out there, when you knock on doors, when you talk to people, yeah, there's like, you know, psychological and emotional armor that people have because they've been hurt a, a lot of times by a system that's told them, oh, change is coming if you believe X, Y, or Z. If you just give us your vote, if you just give us your, your faith one more time, this is gonna happen. But like when you go out there and, and this is what separates, I think, like revolutionaries, real revolutionaries from like, you know, political hacks or these like, you know, paid lackeys that we'll see from like the Democratic Party or these other like political operatives. 
is when you truly believe what you're out there for. When you're like someone like our, like the people in our party that like we all like, you know, work, we're all surviving just like these other people. But then we like, you know, have this fundamental belief that not only is revolution possible, but we can actually do it here in the place where they think that they're the safest. Like when you have that genuine belief, that's not just like, you know, us just blowing, for lack of a better word, blowing smoke up our bloomers or whatever. It's like literally just, it's, it almost happened here. If you look at the history of the 30s, if you look at the history, oh, yeah. that, you know, they obviously don't teach us in school. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, the bourgeoisie want to tell us they're invincible. But if you, you know, once, what, you know, some of us, we've actually, you know, when we see it, we know that that's not the truth. So when you are talking to somebody that actually genuinely believes that not only like should we like run the world, but we can if we all just come together, that's really infectious. I've noticed that that optimism, that hope really, really touches people when I'm like, you know, outside of a Walmart, you know, outside of a strip mall or something. And I'm like, oh, hey, you know, like I work in a call center for basically minimum wage, talking to people just like you that deserve, you know, that are going through it, you know, for one reason or another. And I say that constitutional guarantees of housing, healthcare, and, and education should be like something that we should have had done years ago, right? Um, that really like, kind of like catches in people's minds and it makes it easier for people to want to do something if they actually believe that, you know, it's possible. <laughs> and I mean, some strategies for for that that I've noticed is like just having to get out, getting off of the, for lack of a better word, I mean, we're on a computer right now, but like, you know, getting off of social media for in a, in a, in a, for a moment just to get like out in the streets and actually talking to people. Because if you just listen to the echo chamber of what the so-called left is on, on social media, it, it's enough to make you just be like, oh my gosh, like how hopeless is this? Yeah. But if you actually get out there and talk to working class people, oh, no, I mean, they're just like me. I mean, like I said, I wasn't a socialist four years ago, neither were you. Um, it's, you know, if anything, it's a great optimism shot uh, and a revolutionary optimism shot immediately by just actually going out and talking to real workers and seeing that like, it's not like a lack of desire or even a lack of like, you know, knowledge. It's just a lack of organization and a lack of, you know, historical memory because, you know, obviously like the, the bourgeoisie, we all know what happened with COINTELPRO. I mean, they tried to squash and destroy our movements. So, I mean, obviously the, you know, there's going to be a very real material impact to that. And the only thing that's going to change that is also, you know, us changing the material conditions, going out there, talking to people, presenting an alternative. If we're just expecting people to discover it on their own, you know, then we're going to be gravely disappointed, right? To, to kind of piggyback here, to give people an idea of just how entrenched the capitalist duopoly is in this country, do you want to share how difficult it is for you to run as a, you know, as a third party candidate and as an, as a socialist, how the election laws are intentionally rigged to keep candidates like you, uh, like yourself from getting on the ballot and on the debate stage? And, and how do we, how can we best break down these barriers so the working class can have real representation? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'd love to talk about this because this is something that impacts like my day to day running a, a campaign. Uh, so it's incredibly, especially in California, it's incredibly anti-democratic because we have a top two primary system. If you're not familiar with what that is for any of the viewers, it's essentially where the top two vote getters make it past the primary season and then they go to the November election or whenever the election uh, for the in question is going to be in place. So for third parties like ours, like the Peace and Freedom Party that has hundreds of thousands of registered voters that like has been around since the 60s, that's literally the you know inheritance of the like Black Panther Party and the like anti-war movement of the 60s and 70s. You know, the fact that we can't even get past the primary now is just like indicative of how just entrenched and, and anti-democratic the, the political system is, especially in California. And as if that's not like bad enough, right, with the top two system, you have like just the just a exorbitant cost that it takes to get 
to run to office in, in any kind of fashion. For us, it's going to cost around $2,000 to get on the ballot, uh, just to even just get on the ballot. That doesn't include anything about like, you know, going out and doing outreach, materials, anything like that. That's just for the privilege for being on the ballot. Now, you could offset that with getting signatures, right? They'll give you like a dollar for every signature that you get. But for most working class people, if you're just trying to run a grassroots campaign, that's really just inaccessible right there. I don't know very many people. I mean, we all know the statistics of how many people, you know, have less than $500 in their savings in any given moment right now that we're talking. Yeah, 60% uh, of the country. <laughs> exactly. Right? So like to say, of, like, 78% of the country lives paycheck to paycheck. You know, so exactly. the people are hurting at their core. They know the system doesn't work. But and so and they're tired of getting lied to by all these politicians. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, and then you're told they, then they have the audacity. The politicians and the bourgeoisie have the audacity to be like, well, if you don't like it, just like try to run for office and change it. And then they're then you're presented with a two thousand dollar bill that just like, OK, you can't even do you, who's who can afford that. So luckily for us, we're a political party. We're a party of working class people and we support ourselves you know, ourselves, right? We're all like, you know, community funded. We don't get any corporate donations or whatever. So, you know, we, we get on the ballot, but then every, everything is an uphill struggle in the, in this system to try and get, you know, any sort of equity on the political stage. So for example, um, for, you know, those who may not know, we tried to get on, uh, one of the only debates in the 50th congressional district debate in 2020, it was being administered by the Valley Center Business Association. Valley Center is a very sim similar city to where I grew up. It's a very small, uh, East County, San Diego city that has a rodeo every year, very like typical cons cons conservative city. Uh, we tried to get on the bat. We tried to get on the debate stage the correct way. We were trying to, you know, the correct, and I use massive air quotes way, uh, we tried to, you know, reach out. We were like, well, hey, we're- Because the know. correct way would just be if it was truly a democracy and they truly cared about the people, every candidate right. in the race would be allowed on the debate stage, right? I mean, that's sure. kind of the idea of democracy, right? To let everyone, every party and every candidate present their ideas. But the ruling the class of this country of ideas. are afraid of the people to hear the ideas of people like you. Because people like you and people like me, we, we, are, we want to empower the working class to take this country back for themselves, to end the exploitation, to show them that a better world is possible. And so that's why they've really, that's why they bought, the ruling class owns both major parties, the two parties that control this government. And that's why they prevent candidates like you from going on the debate stage. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, in that particular example, they let three Republicans because there was three Republicans <laughs> running in that race. Daryl Issa, uh, Carl DeMaio. And who was it? It was somebody else. I can't somebody that didn't win. <laughs> uh, but that being said, um, they let three Republicans. They let one Democrat. And, you know, the only person that actually had like anything to say to working class people, which would have been myself, they were like, sorry, like we can't let you in because you don't have enough money is verbatim what they told our campaign team. They're like, you don't, you're not a viable candidate because you haven't raised enough funds to like have uh, the same kind of um, kind of, I don't want to call it polar, but they said that like, well, because you don't have the same financial resources, we're not going to be willing to give you a, a platform at the debate. So what we did was- And that know, right there is just so insane and shows how absurd and corrupt the system is because they, they're, they, they're, they're equating viability with how much money you have. But we're right. seeing right away that that's the problem. All these people in elected office have so much money and so much power that they're disconnected from their constituents, from the pain of everyday people. In my oh, mind, yeah. who's more viable are people who are, work, are the working class because you're connected to the pain, you're connected to the struggle. So right away, oh, yeah. you can see our system, the way it separates viable and unviable. You know, what's a real candidate not is, is someone who has more money. Well, actually, no, that's the problem. 
is that all the money right. is concentrated at the top and it's not trickling down to anyone else. Exactly. Yeah. We, we build the wealth of this country. Why shouldn't the representation and political office look like us? Like, and you know, why not people like I would rather, trust me, I trust the bus drivers in my city a lot more than I trust the elected political officials. <laughs> Cause I know the bus stop, but at least the bus driver will be a human being with me and be real with me right. and be real, you know, and have like an actual empathetic kind of tone most of the time. I've seen, you know, I've ridden pub public transit and you know, the class character is just like so obvious, like between right. like the different professions, like obviously career politicians have their own kind of inherent class interest versus like working class people, which is why they don't want us to get on the stage. And that's why, you know, we took matters into our own hand. Like, you know, like I said, these issues are more than just like ideological talking points for us. They're, they're more than just like these weird things that like we like to have like a moral righteousness and hold close to us like a like a like a token of like our purity or whatever. We like to. You know, this is like real people's lives that are in, a, in in the balance. These are, you know, real billions of dollars that we're dropping ordinance on, you know, on, on people in other countries. So we took the stage. We got up on there. We like made our appeal to the working class people of, of the district. We told them that, you know, like, hey, we're running, you know, on a uh, on a on the ballot political party, the only socialist political party in the state of California that, you know, we represent hundreds of thousands of voters statewide and, you know, and many more thousands nationwide that like are asking these, you know, if not millions that are asking these questions. And sure enough, like they didn't let us on the stage. Like there was, you know, support from the from the crowd. Uh, Carl DeMaio, who's like a shock jock, uh, for those who know anything about San Diego, he's like a radio talk host that loves to just, you know, be a troll on the internet uh, and on the radio, uh, you know, came out and was like, oh, we'll debate you, just stick around. Never once has Carl DeMaio ever like actually followed up despite all our attempts to actually debate him. I would love nothing more than to debate all of these people uh, to just like, point out how obviously, you know, terrible they are and how like just unilaterally and unicentrically focused they are on on exploitation. But yeah, no, I mean, they, they do everything that they can to, to exclude us. They, you know, are continuing to do that in the 51st congressional district. Uh, it's actually um, Sarah Jacobs's district, who's the billionaire heiress of the Qualcomm uh, electronic company fortune. It's like a tech company that owns like a third of San Diego County. Uh, she's like, literally, I don't, what's, what's a more precious metal than silver? Cause I don't even want to say she has a silver spoon in her mouth. She was born with like, I don't know, platinum tungsten. I don't know what's the most precious metal on the earth. There you go. Uh, right. But she, whatever it was, she was born with it. So we're going to be going up against literally the entrenched political power of like one of the oldest, uh, kind of, uh, semi-industrial, like, tech families in San Diego County. And she's a Democrat. She proposes, you know, she gets out there saying that like, oh, I'm all for like human rights. I'm for like peace and love and all this stuff like that. Well, then she was just like there shaking hands with the president of Taiwan, like doing, you know, talking about how sometimes we have to just preemptively strike Syria. Like, you know, all this stuff that just like, you know, more like the old song goes, right? It's like more than words. Show me more than words that you're actually a progressive because everything she's doing is like the opposite of progressive. So, yeah, I mean, like I expect that we're going to be encountering a lot of the same kind of behavior in the 51st and this next cycle uh, from the established ruling class trying to keep us off, trying to make it, you know, it's if you've ever seen those books, most people when they vote. Uh, they look at the voter guide, right? It costs hundreds of dollars like per word to get yep. like anything put in that voter guide. Yep. So, I mean, the fact that like, you know, just to even get your, your message out to voters is, you know, expensive is indicative of like just how anti-democratic it is and why mm -hmm. we don't bank on, you know, 
basically like utilizing the the infrastructure of the system to, to liberate us from it. Like we, you know, are banking on building our own mass movement through this campaign by doing outreach in our communities. Like I'm not going to be going to a lot of catered dinners trying to appeal to like liberals to to vote for us. I mean, I will if they want to invite me and like talk about like how they want to actually start doing something for working class people. I would love to have that conversation, but we're going to be investing most of our time in door knocking in, in neighborhoods that our power is going to be coming from working class communities that have been overlooked, that aren't seen as politically viable for one reason or another immigrant communities that like Democrats don't even think about organizing because, well, we can't get them to vote for us because one reason or another, uh, people like, you know, uh, you know, felons, people like that have been, you know, released that that think that they can't have a, a say in the political system because they've been incarcerated. You know, we're trying to organize not only just like the people that are what they call high propensity voters. We're trying to organize and and and, and build power amongst people that you know are told that they have no political voice, and we think that's completely bull. You know, for lack of a word, better word, bullshit. Yeah. They do have a political voice. They should have a vote. Uh, you know, regardless of uh, you know of how they came into the country or or what they've done and uh, and how they've been rehabilitated. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's 360 million people in this country yet. During you know the presidential election, you only see around 120 million people voting, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason that that the voting pool is getting smaller and smaller because both of these ruling class parties only want to appeal to these kind of middle upper class voters, right? To the Democrats want to appeal to these kind of elite liberals, and and, and the and the Republicans want to appeal to conservatives, and and, and both parties are essentially defending their class interests, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the liberals and the conservatives. And so th there's a reason. I mean, that's, you know, the, the Democrats go on and on about, you know, that the Republicans suppress votes. Well, the Democrats do it, too. They, they suppress votes uh, when when they are suppressing people's right to, to voter choice, to, to show All up right. on Election Day and have a real choice at the ballot box because the Democrats don't want people to have a real choice. They don't want there to be, you know, Jose on the ballot and, and, and the Green Party on the ballot and the socialist. And they want there to be the Republicans and the Democrats so, so they can play this kind of lesser evil game. And, but now I'm at a point like I don't know who's the lesser evil anymore because the Democrats are the ones who are like someone said to me today, well, you know, it's not enough anymore that the Democrats just aren't monsters. You know, that's but I, in my head, I'm like, wait a second. No, no. Like the Democrats are monsters, the, the, just oh, like yeah. the Republicans. They're just the monsters who kind of uh, poses our allies to gain monsters our trust better spin. right before stabbing us in the back. You know, so it's like this idea of kind of like I used to kind of make all these excuses for the party. Like I see it so clearly now. And, and right now we have Biden and the Democrats are out there giving speeches in Georgia yesterday about voting rights. But how can anyone believe Democrats care about voting rights when they actively suppress third parties and third party candidates like yourself and they sue to kick them off the ballot? Right. I mean, Democrats oh, yeah. suppress voters, like I said, from having a real choice at the ballot box because actual democracy threatens their power. Yeah, I think it was Democrats who went after Jill Stein and the Green Party. They did. The last election and they cycle. sued to and kick the Green Party off the ballot. Yeah, I mean, in it's several like, states it, like that is that is yeah. the definition of anti-democratic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the argument that the Democratic Party is any less monstrous is just like I like I mentioned it kind of in, 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 in a jest almost where it's like they're just monsters with better spin and better PR totally. basically is that yeah. they just, you know, do it. They move in. They move in. They're. 
they move in silence better and they they mask their hand a little bit better than uh, the Republicans who basically have made their whole political careers off of like basically the culture wars and being like crass, you know, you know, and all that kind of just direct political like engagement, own the libs kind of stuff, that language and rhetoric they use a lot. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would call it pretty monstrous when the United States supported like, and this was a Democratic administration that supported the like Maidan coup in Ukraine where literal Nazis took power and the pogroms that have been continuously happening. I mean, yeah, I mean, even nowadays, like I'm still reading about articles of like Ukrainian activists tear down socialist statues, like commemorating the defeat of the Nazis. They're naming streets after Stephen Bandera in Ukraine. And the fact that Joe Biden is out there talking about like, oh, how we need to increase pressure on Russia. We needed to like basically build up for war. You know, I, I would love to hear the argument how working class people stand to benefit from war with Russia. We first off never stood to benefit from war with Russia back when it was in the Soviet Union and, and previously. But like, especially now, I'll tell you who stands to gain from war with Russia is people like Joe Biden. Um, so, I mean, and the, like, weapon, yeah, and the like, weapons manufacturers, you know, oh, and, yeah, and well, the oligarchs, that's who gets rich. Oh, yeah. you know, they, we, they send poor and work. We send poor and working class people to fight the wars abroad to make the, the rich back here richer. It's evil. It's the definition of evil. And the Democrats will, will straight up say, oh, let's end the wars. And at the same time, they'll increase the military budget and they'll support every single war. That, you know, that, like they're full of shit. It's like it's yeah. all like when I finally saw that, it's, it's like a, it's a bait and switch game that who they say they are is not who they really are. You know, don't listen to their speeches. Watch how they vote. You know, go look up. It takes you five minutes. Go look up their FEC filings. See who right. funds them. You'll see that the defense manufacturers, that big pharma, uh, big tech, Wall Street, the billionaire class, they give about half their money to Republicans and the other half to Democrats. Because it, at the oh, end yeah. of the day, then it doesn't matter who wins the election because they win no matter what, because they've bought in oh, both yeah. parties. So, And that's what it's like to live in a capitalist duopoly where essentially big business and the ruling class have two parties and, and the working class – and the poor have zero parties in power to represent their interests. Now, oh, yeah. there are parties like yours, like the Party of Socialism and Liberation, um, the, the Socialist Alternative. There are parties that will represent the working class, but they just don't have power yet. And that's why right. I think it's so important kind of for me, what's at the crux and, and what's preventing real change in this country is that we've got to stop this idea that we can somehow move the Democrats left. Because I just think of like, look, I voted for Bernie in 2016. Even when I was more liberal, I voted for Bernie. Even I saw the writing on the wall back in 2016. I could not support Hillary in the primary. But, you know, I voted for Bernie in 2016. In 2020 in the primary, I voted for Bernie. But then in the general, I could not get myself to vote for Joe Biden. I voted third party for the first time in my life in a general election. And it felt fucking fantastic. I felt free for the first time in my life. But... You know, we've got to stop wasting our time, energy, and resources on trying to move a party left that's telling us loudly and clearly that they don't want to move left. You know, think of all oh, yeah. the money that poor and working class people put into Bernie's campaign. That would have been much better spent, you know, putting it into a revolutionary party that was actually going to build the infrastructure we need uh, and the community that we need and, 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 and the people power that we need to, to actually fight back against this, 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 this capitalist system. And so that oh, for yeah. me is kind of the really big thing that's holding us back. So I, I always kind of bring it back to that. And uh, right now, we, I just heard Michelle Obama two days ago. She was out there on CNN. She's starting early this cycle. 
Uh, but she said that these midterms are the most important election in history, and everyone has to vote blue to, quote, save our democracy. I'm Where sorry, Michelle Obama, <laughs> but I've been around for a lot of election cycles now, and every election cycle, the Democrats say that it's the, quote unquote, most important election in history. Uh, and I'm sorry that that argument doesn't hold water anymore when the Democrats have uh, the entire government right now. They've got the House, the White House and the Senate, and they've used their majority to govern for their corporate overlords and have done nothing to improve the lives of the working class. So you can oh, yeah. spare me, Michelle Obama, this bullshit about voting blue to save democracy because there is no democracy to save here in the United States. There is only a capitalist oligarchy and it is not worth saving. It is worth tearing down and building a socialist alternative. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And all the more reason why like revolutionary parties or those who are espousing to be revolutionaries need to meet the meet the masses where they're at, because it's not only just like, you know, like uh, that like um, person that just is like the, the, the stereotypical liberal that just like lives in their little ivory tower somewhere that gets like that buys into the political kind of, um, conjurings of the of the democrats right like it's people like us like i myself was also like very much you know drawn in by bernie sanders like that's like one of the first places that i heard the word socialism that wasn't just like some right wingers screaming about it at like a grocery store or something it was like um uh, you know, that's, you know, exposed a lot of us to like this kind of idea that like, oh, maybe the political system could be a little different. And like for those reasons, like, yeah, like those political hacks, the operatives that like are never that have tied their horse to this like or tied themselves to this like like horrible machine that's like going nowhere. Yeah, we're, we can, we don't need them. Right. But like for we have to be in these political spaces, in these in these spheres to like show like not only how corrupt and how just like absolutely anti-democratic the democratic party is but to like present ourselves as the alternative that's not only just there to be like see we're so right or whatever but there to be like the actual viable alternative that's capable of governing mm. and like how do we do that like if, we, if we're just a bunch of loosely aligned people that have no political platform that has no coordination that has no power you know if i'm a working person like which i am if I had seen that, if I had seen like people that were like, well, it's just about the rightness of our ideas and we actually don't have any sort of plan to take power. I've been like, that's cool. But like, I got things I got to do. Um, having a political party, you know, that's available, that's ready to like meet the people when they're, you know, disenfranchised, when they're actually, when they see like the system for what it is, that's what's going to really make or break the difference between whether or not like we can actually get like working class representation because mm. there's a whole sector of the left that just believes that we should just abandon the electoral arena that if there's no point that there's that it's that it's inherently corrupt and that we should be focusing our efforts elsewhere and while I you know don't I definitely agree that we should be also focusing our efforts and organizing the masses we shouldn't be putting our eggs in the like electoral basket to ignore an, an arena where like you pointed out hundreds of millions of people actively engage and participate and truly believe you know despite like all of the evidence that's, you know, and, and people are seeing this more and more, but still a lot of people believe that that's the only truly viable option for political change and engagement, you know, to just completely ignore those people, in my opinion, and just like, I think our political analysis opinion uh, is to basically just, uh, basically just allow them to be taken by the right. We're just basically sacrificing them. We're giving them up. And, and I don't think we should ever do that with our people. There's a lot of good people that are, you know, willing to be socialists that are, are basically socialists already, but just don't know it just like me. Yep. Um, and that's why like, you know, a revolution, exactly. Like a revolutionary party has to be where the people are at. And if the people are, you know, you know, 
buying into the Democratic stuff. We need to be like right there to be like, oh, the Democrats are not only charlatans, but there's like, you know, an, another alternative that you can vote for that actually will not only stand up for these opinions every two to four years during an electoral cycle, but the 364 days a year in between uh, voting days. Uh, and that's like, you know, I think where we're at, like, you know, the left, you know, yeah, we need a revolutionary political party. We need like a, a cohesive force to like express our will. And the only way that we're going to get it is when the revolutionaries go meet the people where they're at, everywhere where they're at, including their homes, including their schools, their churches, all that. But also, you know, at the ballot box, we need to have representation there as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I think it's like a it's balance like everything else, you know, that electoral politics matters, not not because, you know, you know, I no longer believe that you can that we can change the the, the duopoly, that we can change our capitalist system. But right. I believe that we can use the process of electoral politics to educate people and, and help wake people up at just how corrupt the system is. Like you said, that's meeting people where they are. But just to get but just to not present, you know, to not present an alternative there is to really just concede more ground to the Democrats. The Democrats would love nothing more than if we just left them alone and stopped calling them corrupt, you know, and stopped, right. you know, really exposing them uh, for what they are and, 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 and that they are completely bought and paid for by Wall Street and that they've never represented the, the, the working class. And that is the truth. The only time the Democratic Party has ever taken action in this country's history is when socialists and communists and the labor movement rose up and basically said, if you don't take action, we're going to overthrow the system. And that happened in the 30s and 40s after the Great Depression. You know, that is why we got the, the, the New Deal. That is why we got Social Security and Medicare. And, and, and in many ways, we should have, you know, the, the, the socialists back then shouldn't have given any ground because we saw what happened. What, what the Democrats did with all that protest is they basically took credit for all the socialists and, and labor movements work and said, oh, look at us. You know, we did the New Deal. We did Medicare. No, no, no. That, all that happened because you were pressured to make it happen. The Democrats right. will do nothing of their own choice. Their choice every day to be a Democrat is to choose to put corporations over people. That's who the Democratic Party is. That's who they've always been. In this last election cycle, when I say this, it blows people's mind. The Democrats took more money from Wall Street and giant corporations than the Republicans. You know, they spent more money, too. They spent like $8 billion uh, in the presidential election and, and in congressional election, whereas Republicans only spent like $5.7 billion. And, and that's the mm -hmm. giveaway right there. Any political party that has to spend even $1 billion, let alone $5 billion or $8 billion sure. to, quote unquote, win an election is not winning an election to help working people. They're winning an yeah. election to rig the laws for their corporate donors who gave them that, that billions of dollars. So, you know, it's just it's very simple what's happening. And I think we're at a moment where, you know, working class people need to keep coming together. The only way to beat corporate power is with people power and, and to get out in the community and to do what you're doing, which is why I tip, tip my hat to you, Jose, for getting out there and, 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 and being a face uh, for the socialist movement and showing them that a better world is possible. Um, I kind of want to uh, end our podcast with a, uh, this is going to seem random at first, but I promise it's going somewhere. Um, there's a, a wealthy tennis player named Novak Djokovic, who was recently detained for a couple days in Australia for violating uh, Australia's border rules. He's mm -hmm. since been released, uh, but the refugees who have been detained for nine plus years in the same building that Djokovic was in have not been released and are still in detention for simply seeking the opportunity to be free. 
And a number of people now on the right have made Djokovic their new symbol for quote-unquote freedom, despite the fact that they don't believe in that same freedom for the refugees. Uh, Jose, shouldn't freedom mean freedom for all and not just freedom for the wealthy and powerful? Yeah, I mean, of course. And of course, that just comes like plays into the kind of inherent kind of irony of like the rights interpretation of freedom highlighting on the dumb part of it. Right. Which is like it's, it lacks any sort of, you know, ideological consistency. Right. Like it's all about freedom when it comes down to like whatever they want to do. But when it actually comes down to like its application towards and freedom, like let's just be honest, it's a very abstract, you know, term right like what is you know what does freedom mean like we have freedom in the united states they say but what does that mean like i said if i can't afford to eat or house myself or i'm dying of preventable illnesses or you know my brother's off fighting wars for some billionaire somewhere like you know freedom is this very like you know nebulous term as it is but especially when it's utilized by the right it's basically just like a catch-all phrase that they utilize to just say something good right like there's something that they like so yeah, I mean, obviously, and like it's a very selfish. Pr- it's a very selfish phrase for them because they believe in freedom for a few. They don't believe in freedom for right. the masses, and that of to course, me is yeah. what what socialism is about. It's 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 deeper than freedom. It's about liberation. It's about liberation right. for all of us, not just a few of us. And and exactly, it, and it's about the the working class who who deserves to own their own labor, right? Like they're the ones who are making the iPhone. You know, we're the ones who are producing uh, all the goods and services in this country and we should reap the benefits of that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and I mean, like you can just see that clear as day, like in like how I think like a socialist society treats freedom or I guess what we'd call positive or negative uh, liberties, right? Like here in the United States, we get espoused a lot about like, you have like freedom to do speech sort of sometimes. You have freedom of association as long as we let you do that, right? You know, I much would rather have freedom from, you know, hunger, freedom from like homelessness, freedom from disease, Mm. freedom from like senseless war. And that's like the freedom that socialism offers. It's a collective freedom. Mm. It's a freedom from scarcity and want rather than a, you know, a freedom for the few selected individuals that have accrued enough private property to have freedom of speech, to have freedom of assembly, to have freedom of, you know, a lot of other kinds of freedoms that they like, like to throw in our faces. So, yeah, I mean, like you pointed out, like the, their conceptual of freedom is one that's so just inherently personalized to like how like American society operates and how they try to present themselves. It's, 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 it's almost laughable on its face if it wasn't so nefarious. But yeah, I mean, you know, I saw what was going on uh, with that situation with that tennis player and just, you know, laughable in so many aspects of like, this is the political discourse of like freedom for some shitty to be frank like person that just doesn't want to get a vaccine that wants to like make a political spectacle while literally people right here in san diego at the for-profit detention center in otay mesa are being exposed to covid working for a dollar 60 a day like what society can talk about freedom when we're literally profiting off of the suffering of like children for in for-profit detention facilities Mm. so i mean like i would love to talk to some of these people about their conceptualization of freedom uh uh, when they when when we're living in that reality, well said. Well, uh, Jose, thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, we went a little over because I I think I could talk to you for another hour. But uh, <laughs> h- how can my listeners stay in touch with you and get involved with your campaign if they would like to or, or make a donation? 
Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, they could follow us at Cortez for Congress across most social media platforms. My name is spelled C-O-R-T-E-S, like Sierra, uh, for Congress, the number four. Uh, they can, uh, of course, follow our social media, uh, but they can also uh, sign up at the PSL uh, website if they want to know more. Get involved with a PSL organizer in your city because there's a hundred and basically we have a presence in hundreds of cities all across the country, most major states, you know, most states. Uh, and honestly, like I'm a living testament to if somebody wants to get involved, if they want to, you know, become a revolutionary, if I can do it, literally anybody can. So just if there's anybody, any of your you know, listeners, watchers like that are watching this that are asking themselves, can I get involved? Reach out to us on social media. Get involved in your community today because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You have it. If you're a working class person, you build the wealth of society and you have it in you to like not only, you know, have human dignity, but like win it for everybody else. Mm. Well said. Thank you, Jose. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for supporting the podcast and supporting my work. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, go to patreon.com slash amped up if you want to support the podcast as well. And for as little as $5 a month, you'll get access to our bonus content. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll catch you next week with an all-new episode of Amped Up with Ryan Knight.